want to welcome all of you uh, to the first of our climate change and media seminars. Uh, for those of you who are standing, we're trying to see if we can get the wall there taken down and some more chairs set up, so be patient with us. And before I introduce uh, today's uh, seminar series, uh, I'd like to also, I've been asked to uh, all, uh, notify you that it, in the same room on Tuesday, February 9th, uh, Bo uh, Lidegaard, who is the Permanent Undersecretary of State for the Office of the Prime Minister of Denmark, will be here talking about the global climate policy after Copenhagen, seeking a way forward. Uh, the um, Climate Change and Media Seminar Series uh, is a new series that is a joint program of the Shorenstein Center for uh, Press, uh, Politics, and Public Policy, and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And I would like to take the opportunity to thank uh, Alex Jones and Tom Patterson and all of the people um, in the Shorenstein Center for their help in putting this together. Uh, Alex will be here a little later. Uh, he's had another meeting, uh, but he has been totally supportive of this effort from its very start. Uh, the press uh, around the world has a unique vantage point from which to observe the events of our time and to digest how these events change public perception. And this, and uh, without a question, this is very paramount to the whole issue of climate. Uh, in addition to today's uh, seminar, we will have one on March 4th and covering the conflict in Washington, Copenhagen, and beyond. That will be in this room at 1 o'clock. And then at the end of the month, on March 31st, we will have one on techno-optimism or pessimism, fixing the planet's climate problem. Uh, today's seminar series comes at a unique time. When President Obama was elected, I think most people in this country felt this was going to be a dramatic change in U.S. policy dealing with climate. Uh, today, we had a poll that came out, uh, I don't know, a week ago that uh, was in the Yale uh, as an event that they, or a, a uh, publication they put out every week through the, the Yale School of Environment. And what it said was that now 20% of the American public thinks that climate is a significant or a substantial problem. And what it also, and this was basically taking a, a, a poll that Yale didn't take, but was taken from another source. It also said that out of 20 top public policy issues, uh, climate now was 20th in the United States. This is a far change from where we thought the policy would be uh, when uh, President Obama was elected a year ago. So I think that this seminar series comes at a very timely moment. Um, and um, I think that it's also, we feel very grateful uh, that uh, we've had the opportunity to have Christine Russell put this together for us. I can't think of a person who has a better sense, not only of the issue, but of the way the media approaches this, given her 20 years of service with the Washington Post. And I want to take this opportunity to thank her for all the work that uh, has gone into this. And uh, I think that this seminar series will be very interesting and I can see that uh, it has struck a chord with the Kennedy School population by the number of people who have turned out uh, for lunch today. So I want to thank all of you for coming, and let me turn this over to Christine Russell. Uh, thank you, Henry. 
Uh, yes, thanks to everyone coming today. Actually, I think there's been uh, some outreach uh, through the internet, and I know we've got a lot of people from uh, other universities, MIT, Emerson, uh, and so forth. So welcome to all in the audience, and I hope you will uh, participate in the conversation. Uh, as Henry said, we've been planning this, and uh, unfortunately, when we were thinking about it in the fall, um, I think we did not realize uh, how things were going. And as he mentioned, the Yale poll, or the poll that came out uh, last week, with Yale and George Mason University showing that in the United States, uh, public opinion is shifting downward in terms of both the science and the action on climate change. And this is mirrored in uh, surveys that are coming out in Canada and in the UK. So uh, the head of the Yale Project on Climate Change uh, noted last week, despite growing scientific evidence that global warming will have serious impacts worldwide, public opinion is moving in the opposite direction. We're going to talk a little bit today about trying to make sense of that and not just hand-wringing about what, why this is, but looking a little bit forward, I hope, with our speakers about how the public dialogue might be improved. Now, this is kind of how things seem chaotic. Uh, as seen through the internet, the blogosphere, the dialogue, debate, uh, increasingly acrimonious uh, commentary on this issue from both sides. Uh, I think if we look today at some of the reasons why there is this public divide over climate change, I'm just going to run through a couple of things that I hope you will bring up in our question session and I know our speakers will be talking about. One, uh, changes in the media and obviously uh, daily we learn about more cutbacks in mainstream media. We'll hear about what's going on as the New York Times from Andy Revkin. Story today in the Times about CBS News having drastic cutbacks. And in the specialty areas of science and environmental reporting, we've really seen cutbacks in our ranks, as well as the effect of too little time, too little space, and uh, scattered attention. And at the same time, there has been this amazing growth that we were talking about at breakfast in the blogosphere over even just the last two years. And so the opinion uh, media is taking over. And again, media has that nice singular sound, but it's obviously a very diverse group, many of whom are not interested in news or journalism or facts or information. There's also been a lot of criticism of the media for this false balance uh, in terms of giving voice uh, to the minority views, although at this point in time it's sometimes a little hard to know uh, which views need to be emphasized in the discussion on either the science or the policy. Uh, we've seen this rise of the skeptics and again the fueling of the climate gate. Um, having been in Washington during Watergate, I have not got a list of how many gates we have, but we're way up there on the uh, gate phenomenon. But it certainly has uh, gained a life of its own, particularly in the UK, and uh, is going on here as well. Uh, and also the IPCC, the big science report, the International Panel on Climate Change, issues being raised about that, particularly in the UK media at the present time. Uh, on the other side, the uh, diverse activist agenda, 
I think there's been uh, a group, uh, again, somewhat like other debates, it's hard to know what the label is. Uh, they might call themselves climate realists, climate pessimists, uh, true believers. Uh, it, it's a diverse group with many different components of activism and agendas, and sometimes that voice is pretty uh, diffuse. Uh, we have also the politics over policy, and anybody who is at the Kennedy School or any of the other policy schools in the area knows how hard it is to actually get stories out uh, in the New York Times or otherwise on uh, stories involving deep policy, cap and trade, and much easier to uh, hit the political uh, high notes. And we also have the political media and press uh, taking on this without much background in climate science. And then finally there is this competition for public attention. And again, public has a kind of singular sound. Obviously there are many publics. It's very hard. We're hearing so much from the publics on both ends. It's been divided into these kind of balkanized groups of people communicating with one another. And again, I hope today we'll be able to talk about breaking down some of those barriers. So uh, today we're going to start with two presentations from our outside speakers. Uh, the first will be from Andy Revkin, uh, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with his work at the New York Times. He certainly, over the last 15 years that he was at the New York Times, and even before that, has become one of the most influential and respected climate reporters in the world. Um, he's also one of the most innovative and hardworking. And uh, two years ago, he started Dot Earth, uh, his blog at the New York Times. It's grown uh, to an audience of, uh, I think, 300,000 unique visitors um, and a lot of diverse voices in the comment section on that. We'll get to that later. Um, he, uh, again, we're talking about changes in the media. Andy um, recently uh, took advantage of the um, changes at the New York Times, a buyout in December, decided to spread his wings and leave the New York Times nest. So he is continuing at the present time with Dot Earth. He will jump into academia as of next week, uh, where he will be a senior fellow for environmental understanding. Good luck uh, at Pace University's Academy of Applied Environmental Studies. Um, he's also really uh, an interesting uh, role in terms of multimedia. Uh, he tweets. He has 6,800 uh, followers. He uh, took to Copenhagen recently. He's always got a video camera, so he's got YouTube video up. So he has been trying it all to get this uh, information out about climate change, and we'll hear more about that. Uh, it's been a tough year. I think Andy has said last year was a very tough year for him, for the media. Um, he personally became part of the story, and sometimes it's a quasi-badge of honor when you get severe criticism from both ends. And so he came under Rush Limbaugh's attack. We'll hear more about that. And liberal blogger Joe Rahm has also attacked him. So it is interesting how the messenger becomes the person of attack. And also, on Twitter, this is Andy's site, and there's the .earth site. Sorry about that. Uh, this is Andy in Copenhagen. 
Uh, he'll be followed by Matt Nisbet, uh, who is an assistant professor at American University School of Communication. He's also a blogger uh, on Framing Science. He's done a lot on public opinion. Uh, the other agents beyond the media that are affecting public understanding and dialogue and is participating in some new research on the health connection with uh, climate change. And then finally, uh, Tom Patterson is um, kind of a, a, well, he admits to being a newbie today to climate change, but he is an expert um, on the whole question of the public, public opinion, the voter, uh, and I hope he will put into perspective both the changes in the media as well as the uh, changes in, in how we're reaching out to the public at, at various uh, ages and, and platforms and geography and so on. So he has a tall order as well. So we'll start with the presentation uh, by Andy uh, from the podium, followed by Matt Nisbet, and then we will uh, hear from uh, Tom. And we will be audio taping this, so I want you to be aware of that when we get to the questions. Thanks. <coughs> uh, it's great to be up here. I've done a couple of interviews um, since I left the Times staff, but this is really my first public appearance with like Q&A and everything, so have at me, and I could be more, I'm still a, a blogger at the Times, but I'm on contract, so I'm a little more liber liberated to speak about stuff. So here's Don Erd, um, and it's been a long, strange ride. It, it, my, I want to just give you my own personal sense of the dynamic that's out there now and what might be leading to it. Now remember, my only my only doctorate is honorary, so I'm not I don't have any of the academic skills of the other people that you'll be hearing from. I'm I'm, I'm talking about impressions, not data. Um, but one thing I noticed just a few days ago when I blogged about Anthony Watts, who has the, probably I think it's the most popular aggregator of climate skepticism. And, and because of the spike after climate data, he claims it's up to about 4 million uniques uh, a month. Consider dot Earth, what did I say, 300,000 or so a month? So we're talking about a lot of people. That blog didn't exist two years ago. And to me, think, think of this, uh, the IPCC reports came out all through the year of 2007, and all these glaring flaws were sitting around for two years. With no one noticing, even though there are plenty of skeptics, you know, Fred Singer had his not the IPCC report, NIPCC. And, uh, but no one actually seemed to really hammer these points until now. And I think it's taken the blogosphere to kind of do that. Because you have this cloud phenomenon where everyone can sift. As soon as Regenda Pachori says something un unsupportable about Himalayan glaciers, then suddenly everyone can just get on there and quickly Google through the document. And so within nanoseconds, you have revelations about non-peer-reviewed uh, work that uh, in the middle of this pile, but it's all been there. It's just now we have this instantaneous and intensifying and echo chamberish, um, concentrating force of, of moving at the speed of light. And then what happens is that bounces back and forth within a matter of hours, and then it bounces to Rush Limbaugh or uh, George Will, and then it becomes a really loud message in the political sphere. So if anyone wonders why there's been an intensification of the discourse in, in recently. That's, I think, one of the things that's going on. And the same thing, but to a lesser extent, it's kind of like talk radio is, I think, dominated by conservatives. Now, this, is there any liberal talk radio left? There might be. But 
it's a similar phenomenon. So that, again, a lot of the, the, the loudness of this, and again, in places like Washington, or if you're in a congressional district for someone who's vulnerable in a re-election uh, campaign, when something's on Glenn Beck or, or, um, or those shows, it's something that's going to be part of the discourse, whether you want it to be or not. Uh, there are other impressions I have from clim covering climate for more than 20 years. And one is that while there's been this sense periodically that there's a, um, a groundswell, you know, now people are really getting it. Now they're going to act. And this, in 1988, there was a lot of that same uh, dynamic that, that um, you've seen in the last few years. And then um, a little bit here and there along the line. My, my sense, and I've, some social scientists I've talked to the, who track the polling carefully, the, the entire, a big chunk of the public attitude on global warming, again, from my informal perspective, is it's like water in a shallow pan. And, and it tips back and forth, but it's very shallow and very malleable. And so uh, lately, again, the dynamic has intensified at the edges, and there, you get a lot of pushing a few years ago from Al Gore and others saying it's an emergency, an emergency, act, act, act. The pen starts to tip a little bit, and then it tips back very powerfully, very quickly as well. You get a lot of sloshing but not a lot of depth. I don't think there's ever been a groundswell that you could say was going to make this a top tier issue. And it'll never be in the annual Pew Research Center poll that comes out every January like it just did. You're never going to see this climb to number five um, as far as I, I, I would almost put some decent money on that. A little chunk of my buyout package from the <laughs> Um, unless we get some mega drought in the southwest that really is something beyond the beyond. That's perhaps like what happened in Europe in 2003. Um, but even there, you know, the science is, actually the southwest, the norm there, we, as we've learned through paleoclimate, is to be incredibly dry. And so do we know powerfully that that's a human-induced change? It won't, it won't matter, I think, when it happens. It'll, it, it could be something that would start to wake up people, at least in the Colorado River Basin. So, so you have this shallow, um, jostleable public opinion. It's, I don't think there's a sense of momentum. I, there was hope at the, at the global level. All year, um, Ban Ki-moon was saying, seal the deal. You know, In September at the climate talks, and, and uh, I mean the climate summit in, at the UN in New York, his message to world leaders was, was um, basically, this issue is really hard. You're going to have to somehow, even though I know you all operate locally. You know, you're either elected or you rule some individual community. You've got to get global in how you think about climate. And we'd have to do it this year. And that obviously was a message that was pretty wishful, I think, at, at the time. And again, when you get at the reality of what people think or don't think, that the idea that somehow the media magically changed the way they write stories, suddenly people were going to, would all galvanize and make this a top tier issue, I think, has been always an artificial sense of um, the power of media. It's just not that simple. And again, the social scientists I interview, again, this is not me, this is people I interview, like Robert Brule at uh, Drexel, and, and uh, Matt sometimes and others, is um, that the, the history of action on, on the environment or on any issue is mainly a function of your direct experience. And, and that leads in dangerous territory for people trying to push, motivate action on climate, because when you get to the regional scale, you want to say, you know, well, the maple sugar is going to, harvest is going to move out of New England up into Canada. But somehow galvanizing an energy transformation of the globe on the basis of moving the maple syrup harvesting doesn't seem very feasible. 
And, um, it, and then, of course, at the regional scale, the predictions and the actual sense of what will happen in Chicago or, or Srinagar is much more complicated. As we learned about the Himalayan glaciers, it's not as simple as some would like it to feel. And the last thing I want to touch on briefly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time up here initially, so we have a lot of time for discussion, is um, where we're at with the media and the overall picture of climate and, and environmental communication. And it's not, I, I should just say communication in general. We're in a world now with unprecedented ability to send information back and forth, to, to share ideas, to debate, to argue, to um, disseminate um, innovations at, again, the push of a button. Um, but this, the synthesis or the, 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 the sense of where you go to find someone who can guide you through all that overabundance of information, that is the open question now. And because the media, the people like me who spend time, who know who to talk to about glaciers or, or sea ice or computer model or, or an economic model, um, we're, we're an endangered species. I mean, I've, I'm still going to be writing for print somewhere um, and, and writing a book and other stuff, and, and blogging, probably, unfortunately, the rest of my life I'll be blogging in some form. Um, but I'm a rarity, and that means that that slice of the overall pie we call communication, that is the professional specialized media, is going to be shrinking and shrinking henceforth. But that doesn't mean we're not going to stop the, the communication ends. It just means that other people who inhabit that pie, the people doing the primary research, the institutions, hiring the people who do the primary research, the institutions funding the people who hire the people who do the research, the NSF, they, a larger responsibility for facilitating communication of information that matters in the policy discourse over things like climate has to come from outside the thing called journalism. And I don't think it's a necessarily a disaster. I just think it's a big change. Um, journalism is going to be around for a long time to come. The New York Times in some form or other will be around. But even that enterprise will operate more and more with external uh, input, um, whether it's um, because we have fewer bureaus, more stringers, more stringers, stringers, people that stringers rely on to feed them video from further out in the boondocks of Botswana. Um, that, so even within the media, you're going to see that same cloudiness evolving. The bottom line, though, is that if everyone is going to have to get more engaged, especially if you care about disinformation, I was at a meeting on a completely different kind of environmental, actually uh, existential risk, which is this weird thing called near-Earth um, uh, objects, NEOs, um, with a bunch of the people who do every day are out there with their telescopes tracking these objects, one of which is some, someday going to slam somewhere on the Earth and either create a mega tsunami or take out a city or most likely be in the ocean. Anyway, they're really worried about how every time JPL, NASA's lab that does this, puts out a note, it gets completely flamed around and misconstrued. Um, and what, one of the things that came out of this meeting was, you know, you guys have to be on Twitter. Because you have to be monitoring for the flamers doing the wrong thing so you can immediately deflame, uh, get out there ahead of the story, say, you know, there is a, we just identified a new object. It's not going to take out Dubuque. It's going to take out New Delhi or whatever. Um, <laughs> You have to be, take advantage of the, the same slipperiness and speed and, and the ability to kind of take the pulse of global communication, which anyone can do now. Um, but if you're not out there monitoring it, if you're not out there in that soup, however ugly it may be, you're going to be missing an opportunity to 
exert some authority and exert a little bit of control on the discourse altogether. So that's from a completely different arena, but that same thing could be happening. And I'll give you one last parting thought, which is on the IPCC. Uh, the IPCC has not been very quick to um, rebut overstatement. They've been, there are scientists who work within the IPCC process who've been very quick to you know, rebut the uh, hardcore skeptics, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence of people being willing to say, hey, you know, the glaciers are not going to disappear by 2035. Uh, and, and that, I think, has been a, a mistake. I think they have to be true to, the, to their mandate and to the science in both directions and to be responsive and not just sit there and put out a report and then five years later put out another one. If that process doesn't become more dynamic, um, the chances of these distortions, the sort of sloshiness going away are, are nil. So I'll stop there for a minute. There's some fun stuff I could show you on the blog in a little while. Thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm going to open with a, a few short remarks that I hope will uh, suggest uh, several important themes for discussion. Um, and then I'm going to move to uh, describe uh, some research that we're currently working on. I'm working on with several colleagues evaluating uh, alternative ways to engage Americans on, on climate change. Um, a little more than a year ago, when President Obama in his inaugural speech promised to restore science to its rightful place in America, there was great hope that the President and the Democratic Congress would soon pass major legislation on climate change and lead the world to a new climate treaty. However, as has been mentioned and all of you know, all of you know, due to a complexity of factors, meaningful policy action at the national and international level appears to have stalled. Uh, for many scientists and environmentalists, the factor that has been perhaps generated the greatest concern is the belief that climate skeptics are now even more influential in news coverage, media commentary, and policy debate. Indeed, the climate skeptic strategy appears to be evolved. While skeptics continue to emphasize traditional frames alleging the uncertainty of climate science and the devastating economic consequences of policy action, they are also promoting a relatively new focus on the public accountability of scientists and their institutions. This narrative, driven by the controversy over the East Anglia stolen emails, defines climate change as fundamentally about alleged wrongdoing, politicization, and a cover-up on the part of mainstream scientists. The interpretation is instantly and effectively conveyed in shorthand through the frame device climate gate. However, without more formal analysis, it is difficult to say what the impact of climate gate has been on American public opinion. There is the question of how much attention Americans paid to news coverage of the controversy, especially in competition with other issues at the time, and also from what we know from public opinion research generally. For those who did follow the event, the most likely impact is a reinforcement of the views of audiences already deeply dismissive of the issue. Multiple recent surveys, specifically those from Pew, ABC News, and Yale and George Mason University, do show that public concern and acceptance of climate science are down from 2008, even among Democrats. Yet other factors likely influencing public opinion include the uh, performance of the economy, perceptions of cooler weather at the local level, and widespread dissatisfaction and distrust of government and the media. Uh, though as the Yale, George Mason University, and other surveys find, uh, public trust in climate scientists remains very high at roughly three quarters of Americans. Beyond public opinion, however, the incident has and will continue to shape the policy debate in Congress and internationally. In fact, each subsequent similar event, such as the recent controversy over data relative to the Himalayan glaciers, will be used to reinforce a broader, uh, if not false, narrative about political wrongdoing by scientists. 
With these developments in mind, relative to news media and public engagement, there are several important issues and themes I hope will be discussed today. But to start things off, I'm going to emphasize just two specifically. First, scientists have become more focused on public engagement, but need to consider the different roles they can play in policymaking, the goals of public engagement and media relations, the need for greater transparency and public access to scientific research, and their own political biases. Uh, while scientists are increasingly recognizing the need for greater expertise and investment in public communication, as former Belfer Center uh, fellow David Goldstein often observes, many still tend to confuse the important differences between what is a science issue and what is a policy decision. There is also the question of when scientists shift from being experts and popularizers to being advocates, and the implications for public trust, policy outcomes, and public engagement. In particular, I hope we can discuss the differences between advocacy and engagement during the question and answer period. Uh, University of East Anglia's troubles with fielding freedom of information requests is also a sign that establishing a new process that effectively enables public access to data and research, especially when that research is used to argue for contentious policy actions, will increasingly be an issue. Raising attention to each of these questions is important. Political strategists and commentators are calling upon scientists to become more directly politically involved on climate change and other science-related policy debates. Scientists are urged to fight back and encouraged to go so far as to organize political action committees and to openly support quote-unquote pro-science candidates. This last trend also raises an important research question. More study of scientists as a social and professional group is needed, specifically examining the influence of scientists' own ideology in news media use and how they evaluate political leaders, define their roles in policy debates, form political opinions, come to support proposed policies, and participate politically. Consider that a Pew survey of AAAS members last year found that 55% of scientists self-identify as liberals, compared to 20% of the public, and that only 9% of scientists self-identify as conservatives, compared to 37% of the public. This ideological gap between scientists and the public above and beyond professional expertise or technical knowledge, likely contributes significantly to how scientists differ from the public in their views on political leaders, proposed policy options, and who or what is to blame for policy failures. The second theme I want to raise is that there are undercommunicated dimensions of the climate change issue that hold the potential to increase engagement and participation. A Pew survey from January 2010 finds that only 28% of Americans consider global warming to be a top uh, policy priority for the President and Congress, last among more than 30 issues. And just 20% of Americans in the Yale George Mason survey say that climate change is either extremely important or very important to them personally, down from 32% in 2008. These survey findings indicate that opinion intensity, one of the chief predictors of whether an individual becomes involved politically on an issue, is still missing on the part of the American public. This absence of opinion intensity also explains why, even though for most of the past decade, while majorities of Americans have favored mandatory limits on greenhouse gas emissions from industry and cars, and have favored U.S. participation in the international treaty, there has been an absence of broad public pressure on elected officials to act. However, two relatively still new and emerging frames of reference, if covered by the media and communicated by a diversity of opinion leaders, are likely to broaden and intensify overall civic engagement on climate change. These new storylines include a focus on the public health impacts of climate change and the national security implications. Uh, so I want to end by uh, talking a little bit on how uh, a diversity of Americans react when presented with information about the public health impacts of climate change. 
First, consider what happens when you uh, start to communicate about climate change, not as an environmental problem that might have uh, geographically remote uh, impacts to Americans and also impacts on various animal, animal species such as polar bears, and you shift the focus to, to looking at some of the well-documented impacts related to public health. What you do when you start to focus on public health is you shift both the geographic location for impacts from geographically distant places to local places such as urban cities, and you connect the climate change to things that are personally relevant or people are already familiar with, such as childhood asthma, allergies, um, or suffering in most very vulnerable populations like the elderly or the poor uh, during an increased incident of heat waves potentially uh, 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 contributed to uh, by climate change. In our research that I'm uh, working on in, in collaboration with Ed Maybach and supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, one of the things that we started to do is to look at historically to what degree have the public health implications of climate change been covered by the news media. And this is looking at uh, two national agenda-setting newspapers, the Washington Post and the New York Times over time. Uh, on the scale on the left is total amount of attention or a number of articles on climate change. And the blue line tracks just a general mention of public health impacts anywhere in the body of the article. Historically, public health impacts have only been mentioned roughly about 5% of all coverage on climate change. Uh, they've been uh, increasing over the last couple years, not driven by any single uh, uh, direct focusing events, perhaps by an increased uh, recognition of the public health connection. When you look at other specific impacts, such as connections to heat waves, they're much more event driven, but in overall total coverage of climate change, heat waves are only mentioned in still less than 5% of total coverage. Uh, the same thing is in terms of looking at potential lung and respiratory impacts and coverage, still less than 5% of coverage. So one of the things that we're looking at this research is uh, our, our expectation is that public health is a dramatically under-communicated dimension of this issue, a dimension of the issue that is, it has the potential to possibly span ideological differences and to take a public that might not see the personal relevance or a lot, see a lot of personal importance in the issue and make it personally meaningful. So as a starting point, uh, we started with data that was collected by Ed and Tony Lacerowitz last year in a report called Six Americas of global warming, and in this report with a national survey, um, using statistical analysis, they uh, uh, did an audience segmentation to look at how uh, to identify unique audience groups on climate change based on their answers to roughly about 40 questions, looking at people's existing attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors relative to the issue. One of the interesting things about this audience segmentation analysis is that visually, it starts to shape our perception about where public opinion on this issue might stand. On the far right of the screen, uh, on the far left of the screen, you can see that what they qualify as dismissives or doubtful dismissives, the hardcore dismissives on this issue, the so-called deniers or skeptics, are only roughly about 7% of the public. Close to 50% of the public are in the categories of either alarmed or concerned. They're actively seeking more information about the issue, and they report in surveys that they would like to have opportunities to participate on the topic, though they might not know what those opportunities might be. And in the middle, you see sort of broad disengagement, people who are relatively ambivalent on the issue and don't necessarily understand the personal or the political importance to them uh, in their daily lives. So as, the, as a starting point in terms of this audience segmentation over the summer, uh, as a next stage in this research, and stage one in our research, we went to the National Mall in, in, uh, in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., um, and as people walked by, we asked them if they were from at least two hours outside of, of Washington, D.C., and if so, would they participate in a survey on climate change. They then filled out a 15-item questionnaire that then validly and reliably uh, placed them within one of the six audience segments that were previously identified in the survey that I just showed you. 
Uh, if they placed into one of the audience segments that we were looking for, they, then asked, uh, they, they were then offered $50 uh, to go to the sculpture garden by the Hirschhorn and sit with us for an hour talking in an open-ended way about their attitudes, their beliefs, uh, and their knowledge in their preferred policy actions or personal <coughs> behaviors uh, on this issue. Then at the end of the hour, we handed them a one-page sheet that was an essay describing both the public health risks and threats of climate change, um, and then the actions, the mitigation-related actions on climate change that might have public health benefits. Um, and as they read the, the essay, they were asked to mark in green anything that they found especially clear or useful, and to mark in pink anything that they found especially uh, not clear or confusing. And here's what we found. One is, one of the first things we asked them before, uh, after they marked up the essay, we, we asked them generally, what were your reactions to this essay? We took their open-ended statements and we coded them into either negative or positive or neutral reactions. And across the audience segments, one of the things that we find unexpectedly, the two audience segments that say that they're concerned or alarmed about the issue uh, reacted very positively to the essay. Um, but also of interest is that the disengaged and the doubtful, on average, uh, were in the direction of a positive general reaction to the essay in terms of their statements. Not surprisingly, though, the dismissives were automatically starting to counter-argue to any information uh, presented on climate change. But when we weighted these audience segments to the national population, Overall, there was a positive reaction to the essay in terms of uh, projecting and extrapolating back to the population. Second, then, we then totaled up the difference between, um, on each sentence, the difference between the number of times it was marked in green and the number of the times it was marked in pink. And one of the interesting things that we found was as people moved across the essay and registered their reactions to the essay, when climate change was talked about in terms of solutions, mitigation actions, and those mitigation actions were paired with information about the public health benefits that might accrue to them as individuals or in terms of the communities, uh, people's positive reactions went way up on average uh, across audience segments. So this is the first three audience segments plus then extrapolated to the national population. This is the next three audience segments that tend to be more doubtful or dismiss dismissive. Even the doubtfuls and the dismissives were reacting positively to mitigation-related policies when paired with possible public health benefits to themselves or to the communities. And you see that there's one drop in reaction there, and I'll talk about in a second uh, what that might be. So overall, what we found in the essay is all six audience segments, a diversity of Americans across ideology, age, gender, and race, um, agreed that uh, with the statement, good health is a strong blessing. Public health is a strongly held value, more so than the environment. Uh, and it's an opening to start to move across the ideological divide. Then when specific mitigation-related actions were paired with their public health benefits, such as uh, investing in cleaner energy sources and more efficient energy to, that would lead to healthy air debris, improving the designs of our cities that would uh, increase walking, biking, and make people more active and lose weight, or uh, using uh, cleaner energy sources and public transportation that would make our, our, our communities friendly to trains, buses, bikers, and walkers, and improve the quality and safety of food, all six audience segments could agree with those statements. Finally, of interest though, all six audience segments disagreed with the statement, reacted negatively to the idea that we should decrease our consumption of fruits and vegetables and decrease our intake of meat, especially beef, uh, and as a way to cut down the mitigation, even if it would lead to healthy benefits for ourselves. So in stage two of our research, one of the things that we're turning now in a national survey then um, is that we're re-interviewing the same panel from 2008. They're going to complete four, the 40 items. They'll then be uh, quantified in terms of the different audience segments. And then the audience segments will be randomly assigned to three different frame conditions. 
where after uh, uh, filling out these survey questions, they're then presented with a, uh, an essay about climate change that either focuses on the public health implications and related solutions, the national security implications and related solutions, or as a comparison in a traditional frame of uh, defining climate change as an environmental problem. Um, and what we'll be able to look at then is um, at the end in terms of um, how people react to the public health essay in terms of real behavioral outcomes. Are they willing to send uh, an email to a member of, uh, of the Senate? Are they willing to send an email to a friend? And what is the content of their emails as well? So thank you. That's just um, uh, a little bit in terms of how people might react to an alternative message on public health. And I'm looking forward to your comments in the discussion session. Chris was nice enough to let me off the hook uh, by saying that I don't know very much about climate change, and uh, she's quite right about that, and I don't know very much specifically about public opinion and climate change. But what I thought I could do is put this in the broader context of what we know about uh, public opinion uh, and public communication as it relates to uh, public opinion. There was a really interesting study that was done at the end of the Second World War by uh, a well-known sociologist, Herb Hyman, um, and he published an article uh, based on that study. Uh, it was entitled, Why Information Campaigns Fail. Uh, and what he was looking at was a determined attempt on the part of government to inform the public about a social issue. Uh, and they were out with surveys before the, the campaign started, and they did surveys uh, in the middle, and they did surveys at the end. And what they found was very little change in public opinion, uh, very little information gain on the part of the public. And Herb uh, concluded uh, it's a product of several things. One is too little attention on the part of the public, uh, too much noise out there, too much essentially competition uh, uh, over messages. Um, and if you look at uh, social science research over the last uh, six decades or so, uh, you know, one of the things that does stand out time after time after time uh, in studies that have looked at the level of public information around uh, issues of importance is that uh, the level of information is, is quite low, uh, and sometimes shockingly low. Uh, for example, uh, in advance uh, of the American invasion of Iraq, uh, a majority of Americans, not a big majority, but a slight majority of Americans uh, thought that uh, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda uh, were allies, uh, that basically they had worked together uh, around 9-11 uh, and were uh, in league uh, in the war on terror. Uh, or if you look at uh, the most recent uh, Pew Research Center poll on public information that just came out a week ago, uh, this is around the health care uh, reform debate. They were looking at the, at the process as it's going through the Congress of the United States. And the question was, or one of the questions was, how many votes does it take in the Senate to break a filibuster uh, and bring a bill uh, to the floor for a vote? Uh, and they were nice enough to give uh, the respondents some options. Uh, so it was 51 votes, 60 votes, 67 votes, 75 votes. Uh, well, it takes 60 votes, and 26%, which is almost random, right, one out of four. Uh, some people said not sure, so actually it turned out to be uh, the one of those four that uh, received the most uh, endorsement from the public, but, but only 26% of Americans said it takes 60 votes to break break the vote. And then they asked, uh, who's the Senate Majority Leader? Is it uh, 
Harry Reid, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Al Franken, uh, <laughs> Hillary Clinton. 40% Harry Reid. Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, comes in second in that, in that poll. Uh, and we see the same problem uh, when we look at polls on global warming. Uh, there was a CNN national poll that was conducted uh, shortly before the Copenhagen conference in December. 45% uh, of Americans in that poll uh, said they believe global warming is happening uh, and that it's due to human activity. 55%, the majority, said either it's not happening, or I'm not sure whether it's happening, um, or it's happening, but it's due to natural causes, non-human factors. Um, so uh, I would say from this, uh, you know, we can turn to the media, uh, we can ask the media to do a better job of reporting, uh, but this is a monumental task, trying to inform a public uh, about a public issue. Uh, and it's harder today uh, than it was when Herb Hyman uh, did his uh, survey, his study, uh, after World War II. Uh, about half of Americans now say they get most of their news uh, from what I would call the new media, uh, from cable television, from radio talk shows, uh, from blogs. Uh, there's more information out there than ever before, uh, but there's also more misinformation out there. Uh, than ever before, uh, and for the most part, that misinformation is concentrated uh, in the new media. Uh, and we help it along uh, because many of us uh, have a preference uh, for that kind of news. Uh, one of the things that we're finding is that the growth area in news is in opinionated uh, news and public information, uh, and we're seeing a real gravitation of the audience uh, toward those sites with conservatives moving toward uh, Fox News and, uh, and talk radio, liberals moving increasingly to MSNBC and other compatible sources. And when you look on the web, uh, the tendency is even more uh, exaggerated. Uh, and there's some anecdotal evidence. I'm trying to get more systematic evidence, but there's anecdotal evidence uh, that the level of misinformation uh, in society is on the increase. Uh, we've always had a problem with a lack of information, but increasingly I think we have a problem with misinformation of the kind of Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, the death panels uh, around the healthcare reform debate, uh, global uh, warming as a conspiracy or a hoax. Uh, and then it strikes me that there are some particular problems around global warming and why it's very difficult to get a public uh, up to speed on this particular issue. Uh, personally, it's very hard to verify that global warming is happening or not happening. Uh, not many Americans right now are denying that we're in an economic downturn. Uh, they know about joblessness. Uh, they know about the problems of home foreclosures and the like. That's a pretty tangible issue for them. Uh, global warming is not very tangible uh, for the average person. And when they do trot out a metric, they trot out the wrong one, right? Uh, instead of thinking about climate, uh, they think about the weather. Uh, and climate is a slow, steady process of change. Uh, weather is quite variable. Uh, and if you're looking at weather and trying to make a determination about whether global warming uh, is happening or not, you're looking in the wrong place, right? And there's nothing like a very cold winter uh, to convince uh, uh, 
uh, an additional percentage of the American public that uh, global warming is, uh, isn't happening. Uh, then a second thing around this particular issue, the public tends to confuse uh, problems and attempts at a solution or what's <laughs> happening in the policy arena addressing particular problems. So when they see lawmakers, scientists, economists, and others argue about how to deal with global warming, for some of them, that calls into question global warming itself. Uh, they're attentive to the debates, the disagreements, and that raises questions about whether there's a problem uh, out there or not. And we've seen that around the healthcare uh, debate. Uh, there hasn't been much change in public opinion in terms of whether people think there's a problem, but there's a lot of change that's going on around uh, sort of responding to it and the like, and you get a uh, sort of a conflation of concerns about the problem and what's happening with the debate. And then finally, uh, this will be my last point, uh, I don't want to leave here without uh, putting the mainstream media on the hook, too. Uh, it's not all about an inattentive public uh, or uh, uh, simply the, the new media uh, and their trafficking in uh, misinformation and the like. Uh, there are two problems with the press and why this uh, particular issue uh, is not well suited to the press. Uh, the press, above all, likes to report events, what's new about the last 24 hours. And they've always had difficulty with these issues that are chronic, that are long-term. Uh, and so you'll get coverage of global warming when you get something that obtrudes about global warming. So a big chunk uh, of a glacier collapses into the ocean, uh, or you have a major research report, or you have the conference in Copenhagen. That will direct the news media's attention to that particular problem. But in the absence of a directing event of that kind, uh, this is not going to be a large issue for the press. That's not the way that they operate. And then secondly, if you think about the voices that are out there in global warming and where journalists are looking uh, for their cues, if you think about scientists somehow and the distribution of scientific opinion around global warming is around most policy issues is roughly fitting a bell curve. Uh, what are the media attentive to in that bell curve? Well, they tend not to be very interested in the roughly 95% uh, who are, you know, within a couple of standard deviations of the, of the middle. Uh, they're interested in the 2.5% uh, on the left or the 2.5% on the right. Uh, and so the doomsayers and the naysayers get more attention uh, than you would think they would deserve uh, given where they fit in the distribution of scientific opinion uh, around global warming. Thank you. suggest you weren't an expert on climate change. You're welcome to join into this area as well. He, he in fact, is an expert on public opinion, has written several books uh, in this area. And he actually is the Bradley professor at the Shorenstein Center. Uh, you made two comments, Tom, that, that I think would be good for us to discuss. And one was about this problem of verifying it personally. You know, how do people relate to it? And given your title as the Ben Bradley Professor, and just one quick anecdote, uh, being in the Washington Post newsroom when Bradley was the editor, and we were trying to write, as science writers, about the hole in the ozone layer, he had a hard time believing that as well. And he would walk by our desk and raise his arm and 
asked, uh, you're blaming deodorant man, and he would just kind of go like this and just shake his head. So uh, I think convincing people to verify, and then your other point about the newness. Um, the other thing with this kind of story is there's sort of the new hope, no hope uh, pendulum. And so I'd like to kind of start off, uh, Andy, uh, addressing a little bit this question of how we you know, stop the pendulum swing. Is there a way to get information out there uh, that's usable to this uh, public in the middle that right now is not so interested? How, how do we get information out there? <laughs> um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, Dot Earth has been kind of an experiment in trying to do that. But um, implicitly, Dot Earth is a blog. It's not a front page element at the New York Times, except when some web editor decides to put up briefly a little promotional link. So Dot Earth is out there attracting the interests of people who are already interested. And within that universe of several hundred thousand unique visitors every month, there's a subset who comment, and they're very passionate, and they represent those edges of the issues. Um, not that I would say they're equivalent, because then Joe Rahm will blame me for saying that there's false balance. Um, but there's also that big batch in the middle. So among the audience who is engaged, they can come to that blog, and uh, the ones who comment are like a subset. There is a sense in my head that there people are seeing the value of Having, having issues explored in some depth in, a, in, a, in an ongoing way. That's what's new and different about blogs versus a front page, having a very occasional story in the New York Times, whether it's in the science section or on the front page, about climate is, is a fundamentally different process than having an ongoing daily exploration for those who are interested about climate and related issues like energy. Um, so it's all an experiment. But again, the big tension for me is Where's the front page now? And even the homepage in the New York Times, the, the, in the old days, in the, way back in the 20th century, there was everyone that I knew watched Walter Cronkite or John Chancellor or somebody else give you the, the state of the world. And I, if you follow my blog, you know, I've, quote, I've said this periodically, you know, was, that's the way it is. And it was really, it was like comfort food. We were all having macaroni and cheese. And we were all eating the same diet. And now we still have comfort food, but it's fundamentally different. We all go, you know, the Huffington people get their chili con carne at Huffington Post. And the, and, and the what's up with that climate skeptic still get their comfort food, but in a different way. It's now in their own little compartment of the overall discourse. So uh, looking at that landscape, and I would love to still think that there's an, an agora, a kind of a, 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 a meeting place where we could all at least engage knowing that that old mac and cheese dinner was not really real, uh, but finding some way to go forward with meaningful discourse. Uh, so the answer is I don't know. That was a long way of saying I don't know. Um, we're going to take some questions now. We're a little bit more crowded than we expected, and that's the good news. Um, so we're, this is going to be audio taped. A couple of little housekeeping things. Uh, the audio will be put up shortly, hopefully later today on both the Shorenstein Center website and on the Belford Center website. So you will have access to listening to this and sharing it with your colleagues. I did also want to thank a couple of people. Uh, Amanda Swanson from the Belford Center has been very helpful in organizing this. Uh, Matt Homer also uh, 
a Kennedy School student and research assistant has been helping me with this. And I, I'm going to ask Matt, who I can no longer see anywhere, if um, perhaps he could put a piece of paper outside. If those of you who are from outside the Kennedy School community uh, who might want to uh, leave an email, we will send out some things about the upcoming events. So obviously it's not necessary and you got here somehow. I don't know how. But um, if you want to be on that list, it would be great. And also, can't see anybody else, uh, Edie Hallway and the Shorenstein Center. This has been an experiment in trying to bring together uh, lots of different vantage points from the bill for climate policy side to the Shorenstein media and public policy. So uh, on the question front, if you would follow the uh, rules of the uh, Kennedy School of asking a question, uh, if possible, identify yourself very briefly and uh, let our distinguished speakers uh, comment. So you might want to start. And if it's possible, and we need, again, for the audio, um, there's two mics back there. And we can also carry it around if it's hard to get to you. Phil, yeah. just uh, identify yourself. OK, Phil Hiltz. I'm the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Um, and uh, there's obviously a, a good deal of concern by the panelists. And after listening to Tom talk about this is always the way it's been. We, we have gaps between knowledge of the public and the facts that we work with to make policy. So is there more concern on this? Are we more fearful that this gap is going to cause serious problems? Is that, is that what's going on here? Is that what we're trying to talk about? Um, you know, I, I think it's always been an assumption that, you know, that one of the central drivers of um, whether or not uh, the public supports uh, what experts see are the best policy options or engage with an issue is, is fundamentally a, um, a question of, of knowledge, basically an absence of knowledge. Um, I think uh, you know, the reality from public opinion research and a lot of the research in, in science communication um, is that a lot of other factors, such as trust, uh, values, um, uh, different types of uh, news media sources that people use, um, and their own interpersonal conversations and their own personal experiences um, have a lot more to do with um, uh, people's own uh, perceptions and opinions and their own behavior uh, than any knowledge. And the, the reality is that people are always going to be uh, what social psychologists refer to as cognitive misers. They're always going to actively look for information shortcuts and heuristics to make choices about complex issues like climate change in the absence of knowledge. And it's understanding what those heuristics are, what those shortcuts might be, and then um, thinking about those shortcuts and the heuristics and, and engaging with the public, whether you're a journalist in terms of uh, running a news story or a news organization in terms of trying to broaden your audience, uh, or a science organization in terms of trying to uh, connect with a greater diversity of the public, especially at the local community level, I think, is, is one of the key strategies that needs to be done more of on climate change. That's a more of a central issue than I think knowledge. Andy, did you? Oh, I could say more, but uh, okay. let's keep it flowing. Um, actually, we have uh, Professor Jasnoff in the front row. Let me give you a mic. Hold on. Uh, thank you. I'm Sheila Jasnoff at the Kennedy School. I run the Science, Technology, and Society program. Uh, so for the communications people on the panel, um, I wonder what you do with uh, a sort of long-standing social science 
observation coming from the qualitative social sciences that there isn't any information that's not also embedded in trust. There is no fact that's simply a fact unless it's already embedded in a substrate of people believing the sources from which the facts come. So some of the discussion uh, seemed to suggest that there is information out there that is disembedded, and uh, there's a lot of social science literature that says that, that that's just not true. So I think Matt addressed that point in two ways, but I'm sort of troubled by the specific things that, that you proposed, and I wonder what you have to say about them. So you said, for one thing, we have to look at scientists' ideologies, which suggests um, I don't know, I mean, you know, that's, that's a sort of problematic idea why scientists' ideologies are not symmetrically everybody's ideologies. But the other point that we should reframe the debate in America to, uh, to take advantage of already existing framings that we know sell in America, well, a lot of the climate people, a lot of the environment people of the latter part of the 20th century are suggesting that there are particular kinds of national ideologies that we actually need to break away from, that we need a different ethic, a different kind of stewardship about the earth. We need to think in longer term cycles and so on. So your solution seems to go back to the 1970s America in which environmental problems were reframed successfully as public health problems and everybody rushed after environmental cancer, and so today you want them to rush after public health. Yes, it's a short-term selling point. It goes with what um, um, people who are proclaiming the death of environmentalism have said. Yes, reframe it to take up people's selfish, on-the-ground, NIMBY-type feelings, and then you'll be home free. But what does it do with questions of ethics and stewardship and long-term moral commitments that a lot of people think need to change if we're going to think about planetary survival and not just the survival of particular selfish societies doing particular selfish things in particular selfish locations on the Earth. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, and uh, you know, I think we, you know, I don't think, is the mic on? I don't know if the mic's on. I'm just trying to. I'm glad you asked that question because I think we um, uh, agree about a lot of these uh, larger questions about what does engagement mean and what does it mean to, um, uh, for uh, elites, journalists, or scientists to uh, empower the public to make collective choices about an issue like climate change, especially at the, at the local level, which I think is an overlooked area. Um, uh, uh, Alan, Alan Irwin, uh, who, who you know, suggested to me when I presented similar research that one role is to break the frame on an issue like climate change, which, um, and, and to break away from uh, common, uh, common meetings that are used, such as the environment or public health, et cetera. Um, my counter-argument would be that um, it's almost impossible to break the frame on an issue, that um, uh, people make sense of the complexity of these issues by drawing on, on, on history, on tradition, on, on culture, on popular culture, and also uh, the discourse that is set by elites in the media. Um, it's rare that there's a bottom-up framing of an issue. Even when people show up at public forums, uh, engagement exercises, the way that they articulate their opinions are calling upon the frames of reference and many of the talking point, points and the catchphrases that they've seen in the media or that they're familiar with from popular culture. So my, my, my suggestion would be that you have to work with where the public is at uh, on an issue like climate change. What are commonly held values uh, and things that the public are, are already familiar with and concerned about, and one of those things is, is public health, is personal health. Um, my other argument would be, objectively, uh, there's, 
scientifically well-documented evidence uh, from the WHO in the IPCC reports, uh, from uh, articles appearing at places like The Lancet about these public health impacts. Um, and so uh, if we're not communicating about these issues, then communities are ill-prepared uh, to really adapt to these risks, and many people are left vulnerable. Uh, so it's both, uh, it's both a, uh, a method for widening engagement, but it's also a method for uh, preparing the public um, uh, uh, to deal with a real problem. Just briefly, uh, overall, um, I, I resonate, my head is resonating, resonating a lot with what you were just saying. Um, and this came up at this meeting I was at on this other more wacky um, uh, global planetary risk. Um, and there were two sociologists there, Paul Slovic and Dennis Maletti. I don't know if you know their work, but uh, Slovic particularly was making the point that we're just not going to get this right. There's a class of problem that human, humans operate primarily on their gut, uh, gut hunch or their gut feeling on things. And our politics is largely shaped by our gut feelings and the, the more uh, primal side of us. And then there are these issues uh, that are like climate change or like um, uh, there's, I won't get into the details of NEOs, but where you have a, lo a, a looming risk, a real risk, an inevitable problem, it's on time scales and geographic scales that we just will not absorb. And so one question is, well, do you just, faced with that reality, there's one other option, which is to cut to the chase, the, the solution question. When you really examine critically, what is the solution to climate, the climate problem? Or what is the problem? The problem is an energy insufficiency. We don't have an energy menu on this planet remotely capable of taking 9 billion people to a decent life. So, and I think that there's a way, frankly, to build an argument for an energy quest that, that works at both levels, the developing countries that have no energy options and us with our abund overabundance, as, as, a, as a mandate, a priority, where climate is one of the subset of rationales for, for, for acting. Um, and it's very simple to make the case that we have energy, we don't have an energy menu that's remotely sufficient. And yet you kind of get around this question of uh, the details of global warming. And by the way, when you get into the public health data, it's just another food fight again. If you get into the, that WHO study on 150,000 deaths a year, is highly high, there's, there's legitimate questions about the quality of that work. And so you'll just end up perpetuating what you've seen on Glacier Gate and Climate Gate and all these other gates. I, I think that's not necessarily the way to go. Could you talk just for a little bit on this question um, about the global community? I mean, your blog is devoted to global sustainability. How much with this um, approach of having a conversation um, online, uh, how much are you, I, I know you hear from people in India and the rest of the world, how much uh, can this be better utilized to have these global conversations uh, the opposite of the local conversation. Well, do you think you're engaging abroad? I, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a very naive person, and I, but I do think that there's great potential, despite all those impediments I mentioned earlier about how the Internet essentially can put us all in compartments even more conveniently than, than we already do tend to do that, and, and we can maintain our tribes easier. I think there's immense potential, untapped, unexperimented potential to build global conversations. And I, meant, I alluded to this on a post I did um, the, the day I left the staff, December 21st, uh, on my new direction, why, I'm leaving, why I was leaving journalism as a full-time occupation and moving into academia. Uh, one thing I mentioned, I was, in, I was in Istanbul in November. Very quick story, but it's illustrative of something. 
doing a story on earthquake risk in megacities. This was before Haiti. It's a story I've been trying to do since the tsunami on, on just this utter scale of catastrophe we haven't experienced yet because just because earthquakes of that magnitude are rare. Uh, I was in Istanbul, which is going to experience something far greater in scale than what happened in, in Port-au-Prince. And, and while I'm running around doing my reporting, I went to this really poor neighborhood in the middle of Istanbul that you would never see on the tourist uh, trail. And, and these kids came running up. There was a community center there with some computers. None of these kids have a computer. They don't have any I, iPads or iPods. But they have access to the Internet at their community center. And so they're coming run up, running up to me. You know, here's this American guy with some photographer. And the first thing they said was, Facebook? Facebook? <laughs> and I'm going... Whoa, that's wild. And I, went, I, I did a YouTube video of their community. Go, go on to youtube.com rev, slash Revkin, and you'll see this video of these kids all sitting at their computers like my 11-year-old. And I thought a couple of days later, you know, if there was a perfect translation interface for Facebook where some kid in Turkey typing in Turkish writes, hi, uh, you know, let's do a Farmville trade <laughs> with my son and uh, Jack and Garrison, and he types back in English, yeah, you know, I'll give you my sheep or something. Um, we, we don't need Esperanto. In other words, the, the technology of the web, in an instant, uh, next week, and maybe it's already happening, will facilitate having a global conversation in ways that, again, transcend media, transcend journalism, but that can potentially facilitate having uh, you know, more of a global sense of, well, you know, those kids who are most at risk from climate change, even the health impacts are not here. <laughs> they're in uh, sub-Saharan Africa or they're in... Um, uh, the dry lands of the, the Middle East. And you can start maybe to have a truly sense of global neighborhood and all the, the hokey stuff, the newosphere stuff that people have been talking about since Darwin and before. Um, so that's why I'm moving into that whole realm. And I do think it's possible to have that. At least it's, it's worth experimenting on that. Uh, Bill Clark at the Kennedy School. Um, so um, I'm really confused by this. Um, the the assumption running across, I think, all three of your your presentations, though I know, at least I know two of you don't believe this, that um, somehow the metric we should be focused on when we say, well, is news or information or knowledge impacting society? Getting to it is is some notion of a measure of what broad publics think. So some sample of all the citizens out there. But if we know one thing out of study, historical studies of policy formulation and action, it's that broad publics don't make policy. Focused issue groups make policy. Um, ones that are concerned with energy efficiency or with public health or with uh, water programs. And I think by at least all the research I've done and looked at on the history of the climate and other big environmental issues, the huge difference between this bubble, between early times and now, is that as each of these alternative framings comes along and has its day in the sun, yet another little policy community the energy efficiency people, the corporations worrying about what they'll be, you know, what the bottom line in the, in the responsibility report looks like, the, uh, the agriculture people, uh, the defense people. Each one of those in sequence goes through a set of episodes and m the cumulative effect has been 
every one of those communities has now added something about climate change. And in some cases, it's energy efficiency. In others, it's, it's uh, magnification of existing public health issues. In others, it's different planning in water supplies. They have added these issues into their agendas. And it isn't that now those communities are doing climate change. It's that climate change issues now become one of the salient factors as they make decisions at the margin moving along with their business. And for the moment, just postulate that that's actually what's happening. That's where the really big story has been, that vastly more of those particular policy action communities now factor in a weight onto these issues. If that were true, how would you ever pick that up in the kind of stories you're telling? You, they could not have done that or they could have done that, and the kind of story we're getting here will never show it up. It will keep saying, well, gee, the public is fickle and moves up now. Who cares? Why would a policy person care? And, and Tom, you may have a comment since uh, you've uh, written about the vanishing voter, about the uh, reaching the so-called public or voting public versus these uh, interest communities. And, and can you see if you could make that mic work? <laughs> Just do the, do the Elvis yeah. Presley thing. <clears throat> no, I, you know, I think uh, your, point's, your point is well taken, Bill, uh, that, um, you know, this idea of uh, policy communities, issue publics is another term that's been used uh, to deal with these smaller, uh, and, and the issue publics in some sense are an extension of the groups, they're not just the groups, they're, they're, they're kind of a, a related community that includes the group members and the like. Uh, and certainly I think it's undeniable work across uh, these issues that they come into play. Uh, they come into play in different ways, different kinds of influences, thinking about it in different ways uh, to help people are going to think about it in a different way than some of the other communities that you talked about. But it strikes me that uh, on some issues, uh, at some point you've got to involve the larger public. And this is likely one of those issues. Uh, you know, if uh, but if what's going to come out of Copenhagen is you're going to get sort of a substantial kind of international involvement. If you're going to get a lot of countries involved in this, then you've got not only an international problem in terms of being able to figure out how to do that, but you've got a national problem in these, especially that small, smaller subset of nations that are contributing most heavily uh, to the global warming the global warming problem. And then in each of those, you end up with a domestic policy issue component of it. Uh, to me, I don't think that, if I think about the United States, I don't think that can be contained within these smaller issue publics that you're talking about. I think it is going to spill out of those publics into the larger public. Uh, in June, uh, the House passed the cap and trade bill. It's, it's just kind of hanging around the Senate. Uh, my sense, for instance, is that what happened in Massachusetts probably didn't help the chances that, 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 that something's going to happen with it in the Senate. And I think many in Congress, when they think about cap and trade, surely they're thinking about the specific interested groups that you're talking about and taking many of their cues, and certainly most of their information about these issues from those groups. But out there somewhere is this thinking about the larger public. Uh, in part
part because this is this is going to be somewhat expensive long term, and in many ways it's kind of like the healthcare problem. Uh, you know, and you can deal with with the healthcare problem when you're dealing. Oftentimes, you can't always, but oftentimes you can deal with the healthcare problem successfully as policymakers when you're dealing with the smaller issue public surrounding the healthcare issue. It's when you move it to the aggregate. Uh, that somewhere the public becomes part of the calculus. And uh, I think we've seen that around the healthcare debate, that the movement in terms of public opinion on this issue, much of it in response to what some of these particular issue publics you're talking about, uh, the way that they have played the issue and the like. But the policymakers have been very sensitive to those broader, more aggregate kind of shifts in public opinion in terms of thinking, kind of, especially if you're on the political margins, as for example, many of the bourgeois Democrats are. So I don't, uh, I'm not disputing your point, but I think this is one of those issues that does spill out into the, into the, uh, you're never going to absorb the interest and the attention and, and the like of the, of the great unwashed, as it's sometimes said, but you've got to bring the public along uh, on this one, it seems to me. Just, I just want to say one thing very quick about what Bill said. I may be misinterpreting or what you said, but the story that emerges from what you described is the story of special interests. And it's a story that, in other words, what delineates what's feasible in Washington on climate is, is all these different interests. There's the farm states. There's the coal, clean coal, which is basically a shorthand for a big bunch of states that are really important if you want to be president. And, and there's uh, there's, then there's a much smaller groups all around the edges of those two things. And that shapes uh, everything from, the, uh, from Obama's um, uh, uh, State of the Union address, the, you know, those little points about nuclear and, and uh, being part of the mix and that kind of thing. And, and the responsibility, uh, and this is really hard because it's a kind of story that's very hard to, to write, is to step back and, 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 as was said at the beginning, I think, not just cover the climate bill as a traditional political horse race. Someone's winning, someone's losing, you know, um, someone made some points on the weekend talk shows, um, and actually cover the substance. This, why are we talking cap and trade versus, uh, with Stevens this morning, I was having a conversation about the different options. Which options are not on the table at all? Because they don't have any of those special interests in mind. They're not shapeable around the, the, the coalitions you need to build to pass legislation. And, um, but those stories are really tough. In fact, uh, frankly, when I was at the Times last year through the cap and trade debate, I wasn't covering the day-to-day -day Washington aspect of the legislation. I touched on it on my blog once in a while. Basically, I wrote pieces that said, will the climate ever notice this bill? Um, but our day-to-day our -day coverage was mainly of the old-fashioned Washington variety. And, and I don't see, again, the skill set or the time uh, there anymore to be able to do those kinds of stories. And they're certainly hard to get in the paper because they're wonky and gray and, and, and have words in them like, well, I'm not going to go into the jargon, but it's tough. I would, I would just uh, go quick to follow up on, on Tom's point. Right. Um, uh, you know, those groups that you mentioned are, are certainly important and in, 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 uh, significant to systematic, systematic policy action on climate change. But if you look at other policy issues where there's been systematic change, or attempts at systematic change, national public opinion has played a, a strong role, uh, most recently uh, immigration reform. Uh, so uh, uh, more than the majority of Americans favored immigration reform, but their opinions are relatively soft. They didn't feel a lot of intensity around the issue. 
most of the opinion intensity on immigration reform was opposed to it. Uh, and even though uh, Bush, there was a bipartisan agreement to pass immigration reform, they didn't have that kind of the wider mobilization in support of the bill to reach fence sitters in Congress. Um, the other example would be wel welfare reform from the 1990s. You can debate the, you know, the, the, the value of welfare reform, uh, but what happened on that, you had bipartisan communication about the need for welfare reform, uh, and when legislation was passed, roughly 30% of Americans said that welfare reform was the most important issue facing the country, which is an extraordinary uh, measure. Uh, and 90% supported Bill Clinton signing the bill uh, into action. Uh, so on something like climate change legislation or uh, 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 approval for an international <coughs> treaty, it's likely that that type of uh, public opinion impetus will be needed for, uh, for members of Congress to take the political risk on the issue. Bipartisan. Haven't heard that word lately, but um, let's take some uh, quick questions from the audience. I'm sorry, we've uh, not moved back. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, I'm Gina Copeland-Newfield. I'm an alum of the Kennedy School, and I work with an initiative called the American College and University President's Climate Commitment. It's 665 colleges and universities around the country working to address climate change. and. Most of you are in the higher ed arena. Andy, you're about to join the higher ed arena. Um, so my question is, how do you think we can transform higher ed so that it's not just about a quarter to a third of the higher ed population being informed, educated, trained about how to address climate change, um, but so that it's more like you know, 80, 90, 100% of students who are really prepared to be um, addressing this issue when they graduate? As the naive newcomer, can I quickly say, yeah. uh, what I would like to do is build more interdepartmental cooperation on these things. And the course that I want to build at Pace is 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 a is a, a survey course for undergraduates on understanding global change. It's not a course for environmental stu studies students or or um, a compartment. Uh, I really think the vital journalism schools at universities need to talk to the science departments at universities, and they need to have mock press conferences, and they need to. That, this will only happen, though, if the science and other specialized departments see an incentive for doing the stuff that Chris Mooney and, and others have called for, um, which is to foster the ability of scientists to communicate. And, 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 I, and NSF wants this to happen. Um, a lot of people want it to happen, but often it's, too, often it's just sort of boilerplate-ish, kind of not really part of the mandate. And I think if you could start to build within campuses those kinds of crossover dialogues, then you'd have a better prospect of having more students and more faculty uh, and thus more students engage in, engaging in the conversations that would need to happen. Um, uh, next week, uh, uh, AU are releasing a report that's analysis of national survey data that shows that young people under the age of 35 are a little different from older age cohorts and their views about climate change. Um, if anything, their opinions are softer. They're just not as well formed. Um, and about 25% of young people say that they've never thought about climate change before being called up on the phone and asked a survey question about it, which is somewhat con uh, contradictory to conventional wisdom about where young people might be. But um, I think uh, uh, something that might be an immediate kind of action at the college level is an idea I've been pitching is to, in general science education courses and also for science majors, uh, to develop a module and a curriculum that can be taught around really kind of science, science media literacy. Uh, so this would include um, uh, readings and also uh, popular media readings uh, about the intersections of science and society and also how the media covers science and society um, and where students can find information about, about these things, such as Andy's blog, for example. 
And I think in that process that you would be making, you know, how are, how are non-majors going to follow the science for the rest of their lives? It's going to be through the media. Um, and you're introducing students to valuable sources, you're teaching them about these issues and also how to use the media effectively. And you're also socializing them into actually enjoying uh, following these issues after they leave the science class. So uh, that's an idea I've been trying to talk to different people about maybe starting. The Second mic first, yeah. Yeah, uh, Jack Lepiars, WERS News, 88.9 FM. I have a question for Mr. Revkin. Uh, you said the IPCC has not been quick to uh, rebut overstatements. Why do you think that is? Uh, it rem well, Can you give a quick yeah, 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 frame of yeah. reference on this? Yeah. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for 20 years has been advising the world's governments on um, the state of the science and policy options on, on climate. And um, many IPCC authors readily admit that the process has become um, laden with a pressure from the scientific community to press for action. Um, I, on my blog last year, just look for the, for the name Pachori and the name Revkin and, and you'll see a piece I did last summer where Rajendra Pachari, the, the, the panel chairman for, since 2002, um, said that he feels totally comfortable advocating for action as a person, as a, an individual, even though he's the chairman of this group that's supposed to be policy neutral. And, and I think that you saw in the run-up to the Copenhagen talks uh, some questions raised about Himalayan glaciers. This is just a tiny example. And he poo-pooed them actively and aggressively, called them voodoo science and stuff like that. And then it turned out to some extent, there's voodoo science embedded in the IPCC report on glaciers in the Himalayas, which is not a very convenient thing. But yeah, you do have a sense of we don't want to step on our message. And there is, uh, you heard a minute ago, what was the statistic? 55% of scientists self-identify as liberal, which means, you know, other things in terms of the environment. I think that there's, it's hard sometimes for scientists to maintain the rigor of being the purveyor of the information, but not the purveyor of the message. Um, as, as, as Ken Caldera, who's been a very active scientist in, engaged in talking about global warming and its seriousness, he said he studied philosophy as an undergraduate, and uh, I think it was Hume, the philosopher, who said you can't turn an is into an ought. And too often, uh, some people in the community of, of climate science have been shifting from the is to the ought, which is really society's question, not their question. So I guess that's kind of the pressure that's underway. But Andy, I mean, isn't there this danger, again, which is going on right now with the IPCC and the emails of kind of mixing the bigger picture, good science, consistent message, yeah. consensus with these um, incidents and exceptions? I mean, it's... More well, like it's, it's, a, it's, again, this is... A, there's nothing quite like the climate problem, as most of you probably already understand. For all the different reasons, the complexity, the time scales, the geographical risk spread over time and space. And then uh, there's the reality that, that we're all basically um, living fossil fuel lives and, and liking it very much. 85% or so of the world's energy diet is fossil fuels and economies are still dependent on that. And so we're, we're an object at rest, as my physicist friends would say. It's very, an object at rest likes to stay at rest. And it doesn't take a lot of little sprinkling of doubt. And remember, it's a shallow pan to my, to my reading of, of thinking on this issue. It doesn't take more than a few little shreds of questions about credibility or honesty to greatly um, disrupt an overall and abundant 
body of science that says we're heading in, in range, rising emissions equals rising risk. That, 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 there is very little uh, legitimate argument against the idea that relentlessly rising emissions of greenhouse gas pose rising risks. Risk being, you know, a, a chance of something bad happening. Um, but all it takes is a little sprinkling of glaciers and this, that, and the other for a, for a world that's kind of comfortable, comfortably fossilized uh, to kind of say, well, maybe we can wait another cycle or, you know, maybe this IPCC thing is going a little too fast and the treaty thing and this, that, and the other. And so this gets back, if, if the science community wants to maintain the integrity and trust, which as Matt has shown in statistics, there is still a high level of trust in scientists. And as I think, Sheila, you were implying too, the messenger, the, the, the message isn't just the information, but it's how it's delivered and who does the delivery. If that body doesn't sustain with great discipline sometimes the ability to um, step back from their personal feelings. As Susan Solomon, uh, when chairman of the working group one, worked really hard not to answer those questions. Just if I, let me just go on a tiny bit more. At 2007, the press conference in Paris, when, uh, one of the press conferences when they were rolling out the main finding of IPCC, I remember listening in on the audio that uh, some British reporter was trying to press Susan Solomon, the chairwoman of that panel. So what do you feel? You know, you know, she delivered all the information, but what do you feel as a person? He was trying really hard to get that great you know, emotional quote. And she said, I'm not going to do it. Uh, that's not my job. And, uh, but that's a rarity these days. Matt, you did make the point that there is still a lot of credibility of the scientific community, but I believe you organized a panel or did a paper recently, the communication gap between what scientists say and what the public hears. I mean, there is a disconnect. In um, well, I, I, mean, I think it's important to, to, to keep in mind that if, if you look at kind of the, uh, the cultural authority of scientists and public trust, at least in the United States in scientists, among, among groups, among social groups and professional groups, uh, only the military and the Supreme Court uh, have equivalent levels of public trust, and in many cases, public deference, and you can debate whether deference is a good thing or not. Uh, in fact, the public uses that trust as a heuristic, often to consent to a lot of different science-related policy issues, such as GM, GMOs, uh, without actually paying attention to the issue. They, they trust scientists and, and government scientists to move forward and with their public safety. Um, no, the, no acronyms. Yeah, yeah, okay, sorry. So the, the uh, genetically modified foods. Um, the issue is, though, that scientists have great communication capital, but if they're being called upon uh, to become more politically active, they risk that communication capital. So it's an important conversation to have. Uh, what is the difference between engagement and what is the difference between advocacy? Uh, oftentimes, I, I get the impression that when science organizations uh, talk about engagement, they think about it very instrumentally. It's how can we turn to novel engagement initiatives that get the public to agree with us about what should be done about climate change or uh, what, uh, how nanotechnology, for example, should be, uh, should be supported. I would argue that engagement means uh, motivating, empowering, informing, educating the public about an issue. And then what they do with that information, what they do with that motivation, you can't control. Uh, that's the nature of democracy. I think it's a little bit similar to saying that you really support democracy building in developing countries, but only if democracy building leads to that country becoming a, an ally, ally of the U.S. Um, and I think that those are important issues to consider when um, we increasingly focus on the importance of public communication and engagement, the difference between advocacy, the, the sometimes instrumental nature of engagement, 
and what does it mean to actually engage in civic education about science issues like, like climate change? Question. Hi, um, Brad Johnson. I'm a climate blogger and a colleague of we were just trading tweets a your ago. friend Joe Rome. Um, uh, I have a kind of hopefully two quick questions. One is, and hopefully you can answer this now that you're not really with the New York Times, why does the New York Times science desk uh, not uh, publish stories about global warming? Uh, I mean, is it literally in the last several years they've published about a, like about maybe 20 stories that talk about climate science. And then the, and you know, in a good portion of those are skeptical. And then uh, the, the broader question is, uh, why should scientists who are in one of the most trusted professions in the world take advice from uh, journalists on how to maintain that trust when the, uh, you know, the, the journalists are in perhaps one of the least trusted professions? I guess we're a less confrontational way of saying that is. And so I guess a less confrontational way of saying that is um, uh, what level of risk to human civilization does it take for it to be socially acceptable for scientists to act as members of society and not just observers? Yeah, it, it, well, a very quick rebuttal to this idea that the Science Times doesn't run stories on global warming. I mean, it's just uh, a statistical fact. I don't know where you're getting your fact, but I can do a Google search right now for stories on climate change, and there's been dozens and dozens, and they're not all written by John Tierney. So, so that's basically bull. Um, well, I'm, well, we can talk about that. But, but the other point is more important. do some data, because we've also documented that on both Washington Post and the New York yeah. Times, using the phrase global warming or climate change. Right, I was talking a better, specifically a better about question would be why are, why aren't they on the front page? And there's a whole long list of reasons for that. But we had a series all last year called By Degrees, which was on all the things that people aren't doing that they could be doing for a profit right now to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Those were all science stories, and there were about a dozen of them, and they were very uh, hopefully influential, and they were on the front page, along with the stories we did every week on papers in PNAS and science and nature that are delineating the science. Now, the other point, uh, yeah, I don't think scientists should take my advice. I just think they should learn from history. Um, I've written stories since uh, the mid-2000s on the perils of overstatement and the perils of understatement. And, and that's not me telling anybody what to do. It's just the reality. It, look, at what ha what's, look at how companies respond to the history of how companies have responded badly or well to when they have a little crisis about some product. Toyota right now, the Tylenol issue. I think, was, I think Tylenol, that was seen as a great example of a corporation getting in front of an issue. I can't remember the details. Yeah, they, they quickly, uh, Johnson Johnson, I think, I, yeah, I think the IPCC should take a lesson from Johnson & Johnson about how they handle that. Instead of getting into hunger down defense mode on IPCC, they should embrace the reality that it is an imperfect process. And there's plenty of... The idea that they could kind of just go from one little tiny flawed finding and say, well, that was just the glacier thing and slipped in, to the next one on the Amazon uh, statements, to the next one, if they try to defend the perfection of the process, uh, instead of saying this is a dynamic process, we're assessing a, a live and voluminous body of evidence in fields as disparate as microbiology and, and climate and physics, and implicitly stuff will be getting into there. Not every scientist involved in this effort is perfect. And, and getting in front of this story of that has become the thing it has become significantly because of a defensive posture 
not so much because of what's in there. So I think, you know, I'm not telling them what to do, but I'm telling, I'm laying out the reality of the situation. And the idea, and just last week I was talking to some top IPCC scientists who, who said some of their peers still think this is like a one-week story, that this is just going to, you know, it was a little glitch and, and everyone will kind of just come back to the, the mountain in, in 2013 and, and worship our findings. And it's just, I think that's pretty naive. <coughs> So, again, I'm not telling them what to do, and I didn't tell Susan Solomon that she was great, and I didn't tell Jim Hansen that he's a fool. I, I, when I, I, I did a uh, course at Bard one semester, uh, the, the, year of, the year of the IPCC release, where I had the class come split in half. Half of them became Solomonites, and half of them became Hansenites, and they had to defend the posture of being an activist scientist or being a step-back kind of here-it-is scientist. And I asked them also, uh, at the end, I said, when you came into this course, were you... Who did you sort of instinctively side with? They all had, virtually all said Hansen. And at the end, they had a much more nuanced sense of, of the perils and possibilities of both courses. And frankly, if I had to be any one player in this drama called the climate fight, the last person I would want to be is a scientist because I think it's an impossible position. Yes, you're right. There are risks that are worth, uh, you know, getting out on. Uh, but there are also, there are in, in, inevitably... Uh, costs that come with taking that course. And one of those costs can potentially be your sense of credibility in, in terms of your work. Can we have a couple more questions? Also, I know uh, I was contacted by a number of people uh, who are uh, climate scientists, uh, young climate scientists. So if any of you are in the audience from MIT and otherwise, um, be interested to hear your part of this conversation as well. Next question. There are no climate scientists from Harvard? You have to draw from MIT? <laughs> <laughs> they just happened to, they happened to email me, so there okay. were a number of, uh, of people coming okay. from MIT. Okay. Now, uh, not to de defend the uh, New York Times, but I want to disagree with the uh, questioner before. I think there was a brilliant article about a week ago on the cover of the New York Times, below the fold, however, uh, that was on the Kivalina uh, lawsuit up in, up in uh, Alaska. And I think what they were really getting at, I, it's kind of amazing to me that we're looking at the credibility of scientists and we're not looking at the credibility of the oil companies that have been putting up the money to come out with the phony science. Uh, and, you know, with this lawsuit, uh, if there's enough lawsuits like this, you can start to find out what those conversations were 40 years ago uh, where the whole creation of this, of the controversy was started. And I'm sorry, I don't have a question. Quick question. Thank you. I'm Susan Moran, um, another happy beneficiary of the Knight Science Journalism Fellowship this year. I guess, Andy, it's mainly for you in this case. You said one of the upsides of leaving the Times and doing more on your blog and more on the net is that there's this fostering of a global dialogue, a global conversation. So is that where journalism is going, that it's more about citizen participation, global conversation, as opposed to news coverage? I mean, where, where can there be, in five, ten years from now, room for both, and should there be? Well, it'll be... Both, sure. You know, this is not, as you've just said, it's not an either-or situation. News does happen, but then there are these kinds of issues that also happen that aren't ever going to fit very comfortably into that thing we call the news, news cycle. 
and they they need a different kind of of uh, examination. I think healthcare, you know, again, we try to keep putting it into this little box that it'll just be solved this year and uh, social security, the national debt, um, those uh, climate, climate is much more like the national debt than it is like um, sulfur, sulfur pollution in the 1970s. It's a fundamentally different set of issues. It's anyway, um, there's a lot to say on that. So, so I think we need we need both. And then the reality is, in a world of free information on the internet, a culture of free, free stuff, um, where the Times is going to experiment next year with charging some kind of thing for some kind of access, um, the reality is we're going to have a much smaller newsroom, year by year, decade by decade, uh, but a much greater flow of information coming in on themes that we track. So, and I wrote a piece not long ago when I, I updated our topics page on global warming not long ago for the paper, that's those topics pages, they're not news. Um, and it's a, what we call a living document. The idea is that it's constantly being updated. More and more you'll see reporters on enduring beats, um, well, they're also on things like the Yankees, monitoring and, and assessing and synthesizing and, and curating, that's a word that's been too, it's too easy a word in a way, but managing uh, flows of information, including conversations on the things that they cover. Our, our investigative reporters aren't gonna be doing that. But in almost every other beat, I can't see a, a reason not to do it. And because it benefits the reporting. Uh, my blogging, for all its headaches, and there are huge headaches that come with it, has benefited my overall coverage. Um, having conversations, having interactivity, having people, there is a self-correcting aspect of the blogosphere. It, it can create huge waves of disinformation, but in the end, uh, there is um, some clarity that can emerge. So, and if I'm not having that conversation, then I'm just sort of, what am I doing? So anyway, it's both, and a lot of both with less people. Just that quickly, um, I think uh, increasing the global conversation about climate change is important, but I would argue even more importantly is actually localizing it uh, here in the United States. Um, those that haven't uh, read the report, a Google report called the Night, Night Commission Report on the Information Needs of Communities. Uh, it's, it's generally about um, local public affairs coverage uh, in cities and regions across the country. But read that report and think about an issue like climate change. Uh, if, if local news organizations no longer have the capacity to provide people with information about uh, policy, about uh, threats or risks or events related to sustainability, climate change, or energy in their local communities, how can people participate on those issues? Um, how can elected officials be held accountable? Um, and I, that report and other reports that, have, that are out talk about potentially new models for serving the information needs of communities on public affairs, but importantly, thinking also about things like sustainability. And I think one potential direction is uh, thinking more about partnered coverage and public media organizations as they move more digital being kind of central hubs for partner coverage of sustainability and the environment at the local level. That's very interactive um, kind of uh, professional journalism and also amateur journalism with online conversations matched to uh, community forums uh, and, and other uh, kind of on the ground type of uh, engagement initiatives. All right, two last questions, thanks. Okay. Uh, I'm Chris Mooney, I'm also with the Knight Program, uh, and I write a lot about why scientists should communicate, but that's not what I want to ask about. I want to direct a question at Matt, uh, especially, and the question really is trying to get at how well do we understand the interaction between public opinion and framing? Do we understand it well enough to actually have predicted that we'd be in such a bad place right now with respect to climate and the public? Uh, and the reason I, I suggest that is because uh, I agree the what you call the public accountability narrative is, 
is clearly uh, catching on and making people think that climate scientists aren't accountable. Um, but we know already uh, that that narrative works because we use it against the Bush administration. It was called the War on Science narrative, and you've, uh, you've pointed out that this was a public accountability narrative. And it was powerful because we were crusading against the people in power and showing apparent wrongdoing, and everybody got behind it. And now they're just doing the exact same thing. Um, they're crusading against people in power. They're outraged. We had the outrage. Now they have the outrage. Uh, it's just turning the tables and using the exact same strategy, and apparently it works for either side. Maybe we should have uh, been preparing as soon as Obama got elected to fight back against uh, the same thing that we accused Bush people of. Just one quick thing. Chris had noticed, uh, re recalled, uh, one thing that's interesting to note in, in this in administration shift is that uh, all the coverage that I did of all those obfuscations and, and editing and censorship and stuff that, that uh, the Bush administration uh, got involved in was a no-brainer getting that on the front page of the New York Times. Um, now, theoretically, should I be just as aggressively writing about these revelations? Of, there's total diff complete differences between what was going on then and some of the things that you've heard about recently in terms of scientific integrity of the IPCC. The bottom line is there was a predisposition at, at my newspaper to say, hey, that's a great get. That's, there's a major front page story when Jim, you know, Chris, uh, Phil Cooney, not Chris Mooney, Phil Cooney, <laughs> the guy editing climate reports and all this stuff. It fit, the, it fit a very comfortable uh, theme that we always, that all environmental stories for the longest period of time had, which is there's bad guys and good guys. Shame on you, shame on you. And um, one of the realities that makes climate harder, I think, in the end, in the long run, is that it's, it's one of those stories where you really got to turn the camera back on yourself. It, you know, Exxon is pumping gasoline so we can buy it, pumping oil so we can buy the gasoline. Uh, so who's the enemy? Is Exxon the enemy? They've done some things that are highly dubious for sure, but they wouldn't be who they are if we weren't buying all the oil. So that, that is, a, again, a much harder story to tell in the end. Now, just to say quickly, there's a silver, line, silver lining to Climategate, and it actually opens an opportunity to educate the public uh, about how science works. I think the public, one of the reasons why they might have been shocked by Climategate is they have a stereotype about the certainty and the impartiality of scientists. Uh, and with really good coverage at places like the New York Times, and there's been really good coverage, uh, BBC has done coverage of it, other outlets, uh, on the nature of this controversy, substantive and with context, um, that's an opportunity for the public to learn. There's a, a surge of attention yeah. uh, 
and then, there, then there's learning that happens around that context. But if the New York Times stops covering the issue and only the right-wing media continues to cover it, that's when you have real problems, when you don't have organizations like the National Academies or the AAAS um, uh, trying to use it as a learning opportunity and have substantive statements about the issue. That's also a missed opportunity. And I think, you know, uh, Tom alluded to this earlier, we have not really talked about the fact that I think there was this expectation with the administration change among people interested in this issue that it would rise to the top. Um, I don't think everybody was able to anticipate what would happen to the economy, no. healthcare, and all of the other issues that have grabbed the national attention over the last year. So um, the story news does change. Judy, very, yep. last, very short comment so we can leave on time. Yeah, Judy Foreman, longtime medical columnist from the Boston Globe, long dealing with many complex medical issues. One, just an economic point that you just mentioned. Um, you know, newspapers are really hurting, and, and especially science sections. The Globe dumped its science section, which had been in existence for 20-some-odd years this year. And now the medical stuff runs between the... TV programs and the movies in the entertainment section, the science stuff runs in the business section, which is better than not having it at all, which was the other option, but it's, we're really in a mess. Um, the other thing is just kind of a, a depressing point about... Oh, upbeat, uh, upbeat. Uh, well, I keep referring to a figure, I know I read in the New York Times, about 48% of the population does not believe in evolution. So I'm wondering, if we can't get them to believe in evolution, how are we going to get them to believe in climate change? That is really upbeat. <laughs> Our next in this series is Thursday, March 4th. In this room, different time. It will start at 1 o'clock and go to 2.30. The two speakers are Juliet Alperin from the Washington Post and Eric Pooley, who's the new deputy editor of uh, Bloomberg Businessweek, former Shorenstein Fellow, and most importantly has a brand new book coming out called The Climate Wars. And there'll be more information about this on both the Belfer Center website and on the Shorenstein Center website details. And again, if you want to leave your email outside, we'll send you any other information. And again, thanks uh, to everyone for coming.